The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Today we're going to be looking at, the, the title anyways, is going to be The Glory of God. And to say today we're going to be looking at the glory of God um, is an understatement when you consider who it is that we're looking at and what it is that we're looking at. But I want us today, as we step back and as we open the word together, to really consider who it is that we've come here to worship today. Let me read for us. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 34. We'll be reading from verse 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near. And he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that we can come together as the body of Christ and that we can worship you. And Lord, I do pray this morning that as we step back and take a glance that we would be awestruck at your glory, at your holiness, at your very presence. Let us not take the opportunities we have lightly. Give us the ability to drink deeply of who you are and to ponder deeply on the things and the implications of that reality. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, if you were here, we've been going through this series on Exodus, and Bill was in Exodus chapters 32 and 33, and the title of his sermon was simply, Do you want the presence of God, or do you want the presence of God? And if you remember, if you sat through, he did a fabulous job of breaking out the two things. And and the question he was really getting at was, do we desire God because of the benefits and the blessings and the things that we receive, or do we desire God because we want his very presence? And as we walk through that a little bit, you know, hopefully... There was a little conviction because I think a lot of times, unintentionally, but we seek after God for blessings versus seeking after God for God. And this morning, I want to unpack it a little bit further, and I want to ask the question, do we really realize what it is that we're asking for and that we're praying for when we say we want to be in the presence of God? before the throne of God. And as we walk through this, you know, this passage is going to be a jump-off point today. You know, the sermon today, when they asked me to preach a couple weeks ago, they gave me seven chapters in Exodus. 
between Exodus 25 through 38, and they're all on the tabernacle. So thank you, Bill and Andrew. Uh, but if you have studied through the tabernacle, and if you even open your Bible right now and flip through those pages, what you're going to find is there are a lot of chapters on details of what things were to be made of. What are all the different pieces? How were they to be built? How big were they to be? What are the dimensions? How was it to be packed up, carried, moved, reset up, etc., etc., etc.? And there's a lot of information. And so what we're going to do today, instead of me reading all of that to you, and you're welcome, uh, we're going to try to step back and think through what is the tabernacle big picture? What, what is the tabernacle, Old Testament, New Testament, today? What, what are we talking about? Because this is one of those things that's not just something that was foreign and strange that happened way back when. This is one of those things that's a theme throughout Scripture that's so relevant for us today. And when you look at this passage... You know, the reason I start with this passage is because Moses is up on the mountain, and we're not going to go back and rediscuss everything we've been studying, but when he came down, his face was bright and radiant. And if you caught in those verses, when the Israelites saw Moses, what did they do? They didn't run up and embrace him and give him high fives and say, how was it? They shrunk back and were afraid because they were getting a glimpse of the glory of God. And the amazing thing about that passage is it wasn't even the glory of God. It was the glory of God reflecting off Moses that they were getting a glimpse of. And it caused fear. You know, when we sang the song earlier, the old hymn, holy, holy, holy. It's interesting in the Bible, at no point, not to say the other attributes of God aren't equally significant, but when we think about who God is, you don't get love, 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 mercy, 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 compassion, 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 although those are very true realities of God. But you do find over and over the angels crying out, holy, 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 because it's at the very core of this God that we've come here to worship today. And I work with high school kids, and one of the, one of the comments I often get, and I get this from adults too when they're being really honest, but one of the comments that pops up often when discussing and thinking about where are you at in your faith, where are you at with Christianity, is simply this, I really am interested, but to be really honest, I, I just don't see how it's relevant to my life. Or something to the effect of, it's just so boring. It's just so boring. And, and I want to tell us today, anyone who has encountered the presence of God would never make the statement, it's just so boring. You know, at no point in Scripture, at any place in this book, do you find somebody encountering God walking away, well, that was boring. That's just not the reality. And so today, as we look at the presence of God, I want us to be in awe of who it is that we're worshiping. And then I want us to think about, what does that mean for us? Piper put it this way, and I'll be really honest, this sermon, as I was thinking through Tabernacle Big Picture, I'm indebted to a lot of thoughts from, you know, David Platt, John Piper, A.W. Tozer, a lot of these great men who've written amazing things, and I'm going to reference them throughout. But they, the idea is so broad to kind of bring it down. Piper put it this way, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. And I think he nails it. And that, by the way, is in the book, The Hunger, of, Hunger for God. I'd encourage anybody to read it. But what he's getting at there is the base problem. We stuff ourselves with the things around us that look so appealing in this world. And then when it comes to the presence of God, sometimes we feel like we're fully satisfied. And it's not because we're fully satisfied. It's because we've settled for all of this and we're not pursuing the reality of what God has opened up to us. 
And so today, we're going to break this into a handful of points. And if you're an outline person, I'll try to get you an outline. Um, Point number one, and this is going to be the Old Testament tabernacle. What we're going to do for the first couple minutes is I'm going to give you a little Old Testament survey review. So buckle in. This is going to be a lot of information really quick. But we're going to walk through, okay, in the Old Testament, what what, what does specifically the tabernacle look like? What is it? It would be the equivalent of if you went out today and someone asked you, you're sitting at lunch, and they look at you, they've never been to church in their life, have never walked in the doors, have no idea what's going on, and they said, describe your church. Describe your church. What would probably happen would be one of two things, or both. You know, one thing, because we have this new building and this new place here that we're worshiping together in, we'd probably get into the physical description. We'd probably start breaking it down and saying, well, if you walk in the door, we have a lobby, we have, you know, that. But then they, if they said, well, what's the purpose of all of it? Is there meaning behind it? What are you doing? You know, think about it. For somebody who's not inside Christ to come sit in this sanctuary on a Sunday morning and watch the things we do, it would be bizarre. Because what we do, we're so accustomed to, but to come up and sing songs together, to stand up, to have a silent time of confession, to read from this book and to view it as God's Word, all of these elements of what we do every week are things that, if I'm outside of Christ, that's foreign to me. And so for a lot of people who have not dug into the Old Testament, a lot of what was going on in the Old Testament tabernacle is very foreign. And so today we're going to walk through, and I'm going to kind of do it in two ways. I'm going to say, number one, what was the purpose of the tabernacle? And then two, what was the makeup of the Old Testament tabernacle? So I put a couple diagrams up here, and you throw up the first one, and hopefully this will be helpful. Um, just to give you a glimpse, if any of you have studied this before, you have it. Don't worry about all the little words on there. I'm not expecting you to read that. But just to give you a picture, okay, so the Old Testament tabernacle, the purpose of it was the worship of God. The Old Testament tabernacle was the place where the very presence of God resided among the nation of Israel. Now, don't be confused in thinking that God was limited to one spot. We all know that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere, but yet in a unique way, he manifested his glory in this one spot. If you remember when they came out of Egypt, and if you've read through the next couple books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you know when they traveled around for 40 years, they were being led by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And when that pillar would stop, they would stop and they would set up camp. So after they were given these instructions for the tabernacle, they would build this structure and the cloud would literally descend. And when it lifted, they would go again and they would travel and they would stop and they would continue in this pattern. And so to the Israelites, the tabernacle, and this is a glimpse of what it looked like, would be placed right at the center of camp. Now, if you look at it historically, when nations would go out to war, when they go out to battle, what would normally happen was when they would set up camp when they were about to go into battle or coming away from battle, guess who would be right in the middle of the camp? The king would place his tent there and everyone would camp around him. All of the troops, all of the people would file around him. Same thing as the Israelites traveled in the Old Testament. When they would set up camp, the tabernacle would be set up in the very heart of the camp. And every tribe was very specifically given a place to camp around the tabernacle. So it was a place of worship. It was a place of meeting God. And then what does it look like? So if you walked in, there was an outer court. And you can see it. It was like a fence-type structure that went around. And you could go into the first area, and the first two things you would walk into if you came into that gate, the first one would be a thing called the bronze altar. If you also read Exodus and Leviticus, and we've alluded to this in this series, God gave the Israelites very detailed instruction on sacrifices. 
all the different types of offerings, all the different ways they were to be offered. By the way, you may read that and think that's strange and irrelevant or weird, but let me help you in this sense. If we don't have that section of Scripture, Jesus' death on a cross makes no sense at all. Without understanding the purpose of the Old Testament sacrifices, there's no concept and context for why Jesus would die on a cross for us. This is what sets the stage for everything that happens in the New Testament. So they had this bronze altar where they would very literally offer the sacrifices. And then right behind that, there was a wash basin where the priests would go in, and these were the Levites, and they would wash themselves and do their ceremonial cleansing. Now, if you continued on, and you can flip up the next slide, it's going to zoom in, and you would enter into the actual tent of meeting. Now, the tent of meeting was divided into two rooms. The very first room was called the holy place, and then the second room was called the holy of holies, or the most holy place. Very clever names, I know. But when you walk in, the first room, you'd see three objects, and the priest would attend to these daily. There was, to the right, a table with bread on it. And this was the bread for the priest. It was sacred. It was set apart. It was holy. If you look straight, there was an altar of burning incense. And it purified and gave a great smell and aroma to a place where they're killing and slaughtering animals. You could see a practical sense. You could also see the symbolic sense of the smoke going up, representing the prayers of the people going up to God. And then to your left, when you walked in, you would see a lampstand. And there were candles that were continually burning day and night. And the idea, by the way, was the covering of this tent was four layers thick. It would have been pitch black inside this. And then you go into the next room, by the way. It doesn't stop there. As you continue on, what you're going to find is there's a curtain. And the curtain separates these two rooms. There's a very thick curtain. In the next room, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest entered and only once a year. And he would go in and take blood and put it on the one object in that room. And the object that was contained in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, when you think Ark of the Covenant, let's move away from like Indiana Jones, you know, 1980s movies, and, and bring it into the reality. The Ark of the Covenant was this sacred holy object. It was this chest, if you will, and on the top were cherubim. And the idea in the top of it, the lid was literally called the mercy seat, representing the seat of God amongst his people. And inside it, not at this point because everybody was still begin, you know, given instructions on how to build it, but as you go through Numbers and Deuteronomy, things that ended up being included inside the Ark of the Covenant were things like the Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that buds in Numbers, manna, things of that nature. And all those things were symbolic of the presence of God. And so the Ark of the Covenant was the most holy, sacred object. You know, as you fast forward, by the way, and this is one of these passages that trips people up all the time. You get to 2 Samuel, and David is ready to not just have the tabernacle, but he wants to build a temple for the worship of God. And they're transporting the ark. And if you remember the story, they have it on this cart. They were told, by the way, back in Exodus and Leviticus, to use these poles that would go into the ends of the ark. You can almost see them on there and to carry them like this. But they were transporting it on a cart with some oxen. And one of the oxen stumbled and the cart began to shake. And the ark was about to fall off and there was a man named Uzzah. And Uzzah, if you remember the story, reaches out his hand to steady the ark. He was, this was a day of rejoicing. This was a day of celebration. They were moving the ark to Jerusalem. And right when he touched the ark, he was struck dead struck dead. And you can hear that and immediately be like, you know, God, why would you do that? He had a good task in mind. He was trying to do the right thing. But what Uzzah failed to realize, you know, another great book, if you haven't read it, go read R.C. Sproul's 
holiness of God. He deals with this and several other stories in the Bible that deal with the wrath of God. But the way Sproul put it, and I think it's fabulous, is he said, what Uzzah failed to realize was that the ground and the dirt below him were cleaner than he was. In other words, when you're in the presence and the holy, holy, holiness of God, what that does immediately for us is illuminates the depth of our sin. If you paid attention, by the way, Matt Scott does an amazing job, and we often take it for granted, of organizing these services. And, and if you listen to the songs, they're not just randomly selected. We started with holy, 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 and we ended with thy mercy, thy God, because when we encounter the holiness of God, we immediately realize we desperately need the mercy of God. And so you have this picture in the ark of the holiness of God amongst his people. Now to fast forward really quick, in the Old Testament, you have a time period where they had the tabernacle, then you get to the days of David, and ultimately his son Solomon, first kings, ends up building a temple, a glorious, amazing structure to house this tabernacle and all these pieces. And here's a couple lines. After the temple was built, it says, and this is first Kings 8, when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Solomon, a couple verses later, prays to God, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I've built. Solomon understood who God was and what this temple, even in its beauty from a human perspective, how limited it was compared to God. But then God responds a couple verses later, and the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there all the time. And so the temple became the sacred place. And if you know the history of Israel, read on 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, you find out Israel disobeys, Judah disobeys, and there ends up being this great war, and they end up being destroyed. The temple gets destroyed. By the end of the Old Testament, you have people like Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel going back, rebuilding a very small version of Solomon's temple. And that brings us to the New Testament. So you can look at me right now and just say, thank you, that was a wonderful Old Testament survey. But that's the Old Testament picture of the tabernacle. And to understand where we're gone, we have to get a glimpse of that. What the Israelites were seeking was an understanding, and not just an understanding, but they wanted the presence of God with them. And that's what the tabernacle represented. Now, when you get to the New Testament, point two today, the New Testament tabernacle, there was a temple. There was a temple at that time. Jesus walked along. He confused people. You know, he was walking with the Jews at one point. Now, you know, just read a couple verses from John chapter 2. And the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? Profoundly confused. Passage goes on to say, but he wasn't speaking about the temple. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. In other words, what Jesus does when he comes on earth is he moves the tabernacle, the temple, the place of worship from being a building where the presence of God would come down to actually being the temple. A couple more verses, John chapter 1, verse 1, and I'll jump to verse 14. Verse 1 says this, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that has been made. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That word, that phrase, I should say, in the middle of that where it says, the word became flesh. Word there is referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the word, was Jesus. Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. Nothing came into being without him. He was a part of creation. Then you get to verse 14. The word became flesh, meaning Jesus, the God-man, became flesh. And here's the phrase, dwelt among us. You go into that historical root. You go into the Greek on dwelt among us, it's the same as tabernacled among us. In other words, what John was saying very clearly, what Jesus was alluding to in John chapter 2 was, the tabernacle is no longer a place to go. I am the tabernacle. And when you go back and think through all these Old Testament pieces in the tabernacle, think of Jesus' words. The table of bread that you saw in the holy place. I am the bread of life. The left, the lampstand you see over there. I am the light of the world. The Ark of the Covenant, as you go into the Holy of Holies, where the sacrifices were offered. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the curtain? It was torn in two. What ends up happening is, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we now have immediate access into the throne room, the mercy seat, the very presence of God. Tozer puts it this way, God wills that we should push on into his presence and live our whole life there, It is more than a doctrine to be held. It is a life to be enjoyed every moment of every day. Think on that for a moment. Are we pushing on into the presence of God? Do we understand that through Christ we have access into the very presence of God? The Jews, back in the time of the tabernacle Old Testament, they would have had no concept of that. It was such a sacred, set-apart place. The whole, the whole idea of going into the Holy of Holies would have been fearful because they knew if they walked in that room, they would be struck dead. The idea of the high priest going in once a year, it was a scary and exciting event. And yet now, when you read the book of Hebrews, we have access into the throne room, the very presence of God. And yet so often, we are like the Jews, standing around the outside of the structure, looking on versus walking in. And by the way, let me be really clear on this. This does not mean we have access because we're good and we're wonderful and we do good things. It does not mean we have access because we come to church or we pray or we read our Bibles. We have access into the throne room of God through the perfect blood of Christ. This is why we can enter into the throne room before the Father above. Now, part three, the tabernacle today. So you got the Old Testament you got this idea of Jesus, the God-man. So what does that mean to us today? I'm going to read a couple verses. Here's Jesus talking before he was arrested. If you love me, from John 14, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. So Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. Paul further elaborates on this, 1 Corinthians. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 
In other words, today, what are the implications of this idea of tabernacle and of temple? It's the idea that no longer is it just this place we go, no longer is it just God, man on earth. It's our bodies are very literally the temple of God. Now, that does not mean that we're equal to Jesus. That does not mean we are somehow God. Don't misunderstand. But what it does mean is that God, through the Holy Spirit, literally dwells in believers. And what that implies is that we now have incredible access to the presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are literally to display the glory of God to the world around us. In the Old Testament, they would come and see the glory of God amongst the nation. In the New Testament, they would see the glory of God in Jesus. But we, as a church, are now Jesus's people on earth to take the glory of God to the nations. And what that means is we get to take the glory of God to work tomorrow. We get to take the glory of God to the beach this afternoon. We get to take the glory of God to school in the fall when we go back. We get to take the glory of God everywhere we go. You know, Piper puts it this way. Why does missions exist? Missions exist because worship does not. What he meant by that statement is simply, there are many places in this world where there is no worship of God. And we serve a holy, holy, holy God who demands and deserves worship. And we have the opportunity to take the glory of God to the world around us. And how do they see the glory of God? They see the glory of God through everything we do. You know, Tozer said, the world is perishing for the lack of knowledge of God. The church is famishing for want of his presence. In other words, we have his presence, and yet we're too busy and distracted. One person once said, we live in an, they were talking about this generation, I would apply it to the whole American culture right now, that is over-entertained and under-challenged. We live in a culture that is over-entertained and under-challenged. And, and if you want to get real personal on that, Think about the idea of the American dream. What is it that most people are pursuing, and a lot of us in this room, if we're really brutally honest, we want to live a happy life, and we want it to be pretty comfortable and easy. Anybody want to go through hardships? Anybody want to work through trials? Anybody want to go through suffering? Not a lot of hands go up. Happy? Comfort? Hands go up. And so the idea being, taking the glory of God into the world, we have the opportunity to live a life that is bigger than us. In other words, Jesus didn't save us for us. God the Father didn't send his son to save us for us. Is that part of it? Yes, because of his love for us. But he saved us for his glory. He saves us for his glory among the nations. And we have the opportunity to be a part of that. You know, you think about it from a practical sense. Let me ask this question. Think about the last week. How many times did you really have to rely on God because you had no other way of knowing what was going to happen. You want to talk about living out faith. How rare is it? We live in a world of false control or, you know, imagined control. We feel like there are certain things we can control. Usually when tragedy strikes or something bad happens, then we're, we go to God really quick. We're like, I can't control that. That's beyond my scope. But if we are really honest, we go day to day, we think we have pretty good control over things. The reality is we serve a holy sovereign God that has control of all things. And we have the opportunity to have that God living in us. And that doesn't give us control. 
but it gives us the ability to trust the God and live for the God and bring glory to the God who is in control of everything that happens. So the tabernacle today, it gives us meaning, it gives us purpose, it gives us hope. And I'll read one more section. This is point four, the heavenly tabernacle. Revelation 21, I love the way this all comes together. And it says this, and I'm just going to read you a few verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Pay attention to this verse. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, pain, for the former things have passed away. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun, moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. What is our hope as Christians? We're in this time right now where the Spirit dwells in us, but yet we're in a fallen, broken world. Our hope is that we are going to be with God, where all those things that are no more are results of sin. And we have a hope that that's passing away. And not only is that passing away, but much more important than that, we have the hope of, did you catch that phrase? The dwelling place of God being with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, where we'll be fully in the presence of God. If that doesn't give us hope, nothing will. We live in a world that's seeking meaning and that's seeking hope. We have the opportunity to take both those things to the world around us. Going back to where we began, is Christianity boring? Piper said, if you don't feel a strong desire for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you've nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul's stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. What if, as a congregation of this church, what if we said, we're not going to satisfy ourselves with the nibblings. It's like Thanksgiving meal. They got the kid table, the adult table. We've been sitting at the kid table and we say, I'm not satisfied with the kid table. I'm ready for the adult table. And what does that mean? What does that look like? Very practically, it's this. When you walk out of here today, your face isn't going to shine like Moses. You know, just be really honest if it does. That's something we probably should talk about. But when you leave, our, our face isn't going to shine and people aren't going to see it. But if you leave here today and say, I want to live a life in the presence of God, people are going to see it. Because we have a purpose. We have a meeting. We have a mission. We have a hope that the world around us is desperately, desperately searching for, and they don't even know what they're looking for, but they know there's something there. And if we live out our life the way this word calls us to live out our life, we have an amazing opportunity to show the presence and the glory of God to the world around us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I know to try to tackle the tabernacle in 30 minutes is ridiculous. But yet to think of your presence and to think of how you've worked through the days of Moses to the days of Christ to our day to the, the future hope that we have. 
It's a beautiful thing to see this picture of your love for us, even in the midst of our sin, of your love for us, that you would dwell amongst us. Oh, Lord, may we not miss it. May we not miss who you are. And may it transform everything about us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.